Well, if you've ever played uh, football, then you've probably heard the expression, low man wins. Um, You've probably heard a coach yelling that a time or two. And essentially, what that means is the guy who can get lower, whether you're blocking or tackling, something like that, has an advantage. He has a little more leverage because he's lower. And maybe that's saying a little bit too simplistically because there are other techniques all involved in that. But essentially, all things being equal, that principle holds true. Low man wins. That principle also holds true in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus came into the world, and when he started talking, um, he would talk about the kingdom of heaven. He would talk a lot about what the kingdom of heaven was like. And essentially, one of the main things he said was, low man wins. Maybe he said it a little differently than that, but it was close to that. And this was so radical from what people thought, and this was so radical from what the religious leaders taught. So, for example, the religious leaders, we often call them the Pharisees. They taught things like this. They would actually say, you know what, if you have money and wealth and you're successful and you have some status and position, then you have the blessing of God on your life. But if you're not so lucky, you've come upon some hard luck, you know, or you're poor, you're at the lower end of the socioeconomic status, it's because you've fallen out of favor with God. So Jesus comes along And he says things like, don't try to find the seat of honor when you go into a room. Don't try to be the top dog. Instead, be humble. Be a servant, because low man wins. Um, Let me give you just four of the many statements that Jesus gave where he reiterated this over and over again. For example, on one occasion he said, So those who are now last will become first then, and those who are first will be last. You know, there in Matthew 20, 16. Or check out this statement. He said, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Or this one, those who are the greatest among you will take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. And finally... Whoever is the least among you is the greatest. Now, as far as I know, Jesus wasn't a football coach. Although, had he been one, we all know he would have coached the University of Notre Dame. All right? Just wanted to get that out there. And probably done a pretty good job, too. But um, had Jesus been a football coach, you would have heard him say over and over again, low man wins. Now, that's not the way our world thinks, is it? I mean, our world's like, assert yourself, express your opinion, you've got your rights. And you know what? The religious leaders pretty well thought that way in Jesus' time, too. So when Jesus comes along teaching something so radical, it caught people's attention. And he reiterated this point over and over again, especially in that first sermon he gave, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, and we're right in the middle of looking at in our series called Radical right now. Today, we're going to focus on Matthew chapter 6, the first part of Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus is talking about what we'll just call spiritual pride and hypocrisy. Now, I'm going to read parts of Matthew 6 to you this morning. And as I do that, just so you know up front, I think Jesus uses a ton of sarcasm and hyperboles when he's teaching this part. And by hyperbole, I just mean he would exaggerate. And because we didn't live in that culture, we might not see it. But I think the common people listening to Jesus were laughing 
when he was teaching some of this. So let me give you an example. The first one I want to read to you is Matthew 6, 1 to 4. And see if you can pick up on some of the sarcasm or even the hyperboles that Jesus uses as he teaches them. Here's what it says, Matthew 6, 1. Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose your reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do it as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth. They have received all their reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. So Jesus is talking about giving to those in need. And apparently the religious leaders like to make a spectacle of it. And what he says is he said, they blow the trumpet. And it's like they want the trumpets to blow. So say, hey, everybody, look at me. Look what I'm doing. I'm giving to this poor person in need, you know. Kind of like, I don't know if you saw it last night, but when the Cavs beat the, um, won the game on a last-second shot, LeBron hit the shot. He jumped up on the scores table and threw his arms up as to say, look how great I am. And I think in Indiana I can get away with a dig like that, can't I, on LeBron? But uh, anyway, I mean, they were the same thing. And what, did Jesus literally mean that they would blow a trumpet for these religious leaders every time they would give to someone in need? Maybe, maybe not. Perhaps he's exaggerating. Perhaps he's using sarcasm. But I think we get the point. Jesus' point was this. Don't do this to get noticed. You're doing it for all the wrong reasons. By the way, on this subject of exaggeration that maybe Jesus did when he taught a time or two, just a side note, like if someone accuses you of exaggeration, now you've got to come back, right? So suppose you say to your spouse, I told you a million times to pick up your socks, and they say, don't exaggerate. You can say, Jesus did it, right? <laughs> Which is terrible advice for your marriage, by the way. Terrible advice. Don't go there. But because if you do that, what they're going to do is they're going to come back and say, yeah, well, you start acting like Jesus, then you can start exaggerating like Jesus, right? Okay, so that's the first one Jesus addresses, giving to those in need. The next topic is, topic is apparently how the religious leaders like to pray. And apparently when they prayed, they kind of grandstanded. So let's read about it. This is Matthew 6. I'll begin reading in verse 5. He says, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on the street corners in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him. So, now He calls these religious leaders, these elite, respected people called Pharisees, He calls them hypocrites. And can He do that? And again... Apparently, when they, it, what Jesus is saying is they like to go out on the street corners and go, I'm going to pray now. Look at me. See how spiritual I am. And did, did they literally go to the street corners and announce they were going to pray? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe Jesus is just using exaggeration again to make his point or, or, or sarcasm. But again, here's the point Jesus is making. Don't do it to be noticed. You got this all wrong. What Jesus is saying is this, prayer is never intended 
to be a measuring stick of how spiritual you are. Prayer is a means to connect with God and to have a relationship with him. That's the point he's trying to make. Don't try to impress people with your prayers. Um, I, I grew up going to church all the time, and occasionally there would some, be somebody who'd get up in church and pray, and when they would, it was like their voice would change, and they would get this godlike tone to them, you know, when they would pray, and they would use all these words like thee, thou, and thine, and they would be saying, God, bestow upon us thy bountiful blessings. And I would look up, I wasn't supposed to be looking up, but I'd look up and I would think thoughts like, who is this person? They don't talk like this normally. And, and Jesus has said, this isn't about impressing people. When you pray, it's about an authentic relationship with God. You know, in a few minutes, we're going to read the Lord's Prayer. And I don't know if you've ever seen it in this context or not, but it's sandwiched right in here. What Jesus is teaching them in the Lord's Prayer is, this is what an authentic prayer looks like. This is how you relate genuinely to God, your Father in heaven. Well, the next thing he talks about, he's talked about giving to those in need, he's talked about prayer. He's going to talk about fasting. And you'll see more sarcasm, more humor, and maybe even some hyperboles in what he does here. I'll, start, I'll skip down to verse 16. Here's what it says. And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites, that's the religious leaders again, as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled, and people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, there's the only reward they'll ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face then no one will notice that you are fasting except your Father who knows what you do in private. And your Father who sees everything will reward you. Again, I think Jesus had his audience smiling, if not laughing, when he said this. Apparently the religious leaders, the Pharisees, liked to be Debbie Downers when they would pray or when they would fast. So everybody would know that they were fasting. They're like, Look at us, we're so miserable, we're fasting, wah, wah, you know. You almost get the idea that Jesus is making fun of the Pharisees, don't you? And I'm not sure how that fits into my theological view of Jesus, but it kind of seems that way, doesn't it? Did you notice that Jesus called them every time hypocrites? They're hypocrites in the way they give to others in need, they're hypocrites when they pray, and they're hypocrites when they fast. They, meaning the Pharisees. Now you see why the Pharisees hated Jesus so much? I mean, he called them out all the time. Um, the English word for hypocrite literally comes from a Greek word. And we translate it, we transliterate it right into English. We just borrow the word from Greek. And this, of course, was originally written in Greek. And so in Greek, it's a word like hypocriti or something like that. And it's a fascinating word because this word for hypocrite was used in Greek theater. And what it literally means, the word hypocrite, listen to this, it means an actor. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? So a person in Greek theater would get up and become someone they were not. And they would use a mask to do it. And a lot of times in Greek theater, they would use a mask that looks something like this. And they would just put it over their face. They didn't have costumes. And that's what Greek theater was all about. Now, I know this one looks a little creepy, all right? I get that. But, you know, like if they were playing a happy role, they might have a mask with a smiley face. Or if they had a, you know, sad role, maybe they'd have a mask with a frown. But you get the idea. 
A hypocrite in Greek culture was someone who was an actor who hid behind a mask. Now that's a pretty interesting picture of a hypocrite, isn't it? And it makes perfect sense to us. When we are being hypocritical, we're being someone we're not. We're hiding behind a mask. Jesus had zero tolerance for hypocrisy. He can't stomach it. He can't stand it. Jesus is all about authenticity. Jesus does not want us to pretend we're someone we're not. He also has unlimited grace and forgiveness for someone who comes to him authentically, humbly, repentantly. It's safe to say that this topic of hypocrisy is a hot button for Jesus. Want to see an example of Jesus' emotion on this topic? Another example? I'm going to read to you Matthew 20, excuse me, Matthew 23. And um, brace yourself. This isn't going to be pretty. Look what Jesus says. Verse 25. What sorrow awaits you, you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, then the outside will become clean too. Ouch! Right? So why was Jesus so hard on hypocrisy? Why so much emotion when he talked about it? Let me give you a quote from an author by the name of Brennan Manning. And this may help us understand. Here's what he says. The single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips then walk out the door and deny Him with their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now most of us have dealt with the disillusionment of someone who claimed to be one way, maybe someone we even looked up to, maybe even a church leader, only to find out they were living a lie. And that's difficult, that's painful, that is disillusioning. But have you ever noticed how quick we are to see hypocrisy in other people, but not so quick to see it in ourselves? Um, a few years ago, on a weekday, I was driving back to the church uh, out here on 25th Street, coming from town. I was getting ready to turn left on Bonnell Road, which is the road um, our church sits on. And by the time you get here on 25th Street, the speed limit is 55 miles per hour. And people out here do not like to be slowed down because they've just sped up by someone who's turning left in front of them. And as I turned, a guy behind me slowed down to almost a stop. I, I could tell he didn't like it at all. And I saw him throw his hands up in disgust, like, are you kidding me? And as I looked in my rearview mirror as he drove off, I realized it was a guy who attends our church. <laughs> now, I'm assuming he didn't realize that the pastor was in the car turning there, or maybe he wouldn't have gestured so demonstrably. Like half of you are going, is it me? Was that me? Um, 
At least I hope he didn't realize it was the pastor in front of him. But here was my first thought. My first thought was, are you kidding me? You go to church here and you respond like that. Do you have any idea that you just did that to a pastor? Now, about two seconds later, here was my second thought. It occurred to me, Jerry, what have your actions, words, thoughts, and gestures been when you were driving? Maybe you ought to cut this guy a little slack here. Hmm. I mean, honestly, if you saw me in some of my worst driving moments, let's not even go there this morning. Quick to see it in others, not so quick to see it in ourselves. So let's do some personal introspection this morning. We need to address some misconceptions we may have. Hypocrisy is not the disparity between what we do and what we wish we did or what we are supposed to do. That's called sin. Like, if you wish you didn't have this bad thought or you wish you didn't lie and you did it anyway, that's called sin. Hypocrisy is different than that. It's the gap between what we show and who we are. It's pretending to be something we're not. It's the difference between like our public persona and our private character. Jesus wasn't calling out sin in Matthew 6. He was calling out the show. Now, he does want us to address sin in our lives. But what drives him crazy is when we pretend to be something we're not. Jesus had zero tolerance for hypocrisy, but unlimited grace for a sinner in need of forgiveness. Now, there are some of you here this morning who will have a breakthrough when you drop the mask or when you just take the mask off and say, you know what? I need to get some help. I'm addicted. I'm not going to get over this unless I get some people to support me, to pray for me, to counsel me. My spending habits are killing my marriage. I need to surrender control of my finances to someone else. By the way, a very subtle form of hypocrisy is acting like we're okay when we're not okay. Several weeks ago, I went to a Celebrate Recovery gathering for our community. It was community-wide. And Celebrate Recovery is a program to help you overcome your hurts, the habits, habits and hang-ups in your life. And several churches in town offer it. It's different days of the week we offer it here on Thursday evenings at the Ridge. And it's, the details are in your bulletin. But much of that meeting I went to was just people sharing their stories of recovery. Amazing stories of God's power overcoming things like intense anger and alcoholism and drug abuse and grief and pain and depression and deep hurt. But here's what blew me away as I sit there, sat there and listened to their stories. It was the authenticity of the people sharing their stories. No masks, no pretense. And honestly, I found it so refreshing. It caused me to look into my own heart and say, Okay, how willing am I to be real? I saw something in people who gave their stories that night. Freedom and peace. 
They would say things like, this is who I am. I'm not perfect. I've made some bad decisions. I've reacted the wrong way to some things in my life. But I'm going to rely on God's grace. And their transparency, when I heard those stories that night, drew me in. I thought, I want to have that same kind of peace and freedom in my life. Now, we've said at our church many, many times, we're not a church for perfect people. And if you're perfect, honestly, this is probably not the church for you. But we are a church who's serious about being authentic and letting God change us for the better. Why? Because Jesus has zero tolerance for hypocrisy, but unlimited grace for a sinner in need of forgiveness. And Jesus wants that kind of life for you, for all of us. He wants you to experience life to the fullest. He wants you to be alive and free. And the pathway to doing that is by removing the mask. It's by taking the mask off. The Pharisees were full of themselves. They had so much spiritual pride. Here's the problem when you have spiritual pride. When we're full of ourselves, there's no room for God. But when we empty ourselves, we can be filled by God's grace. Here's a principle from the Bible. It's James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Some of you need to come clean this morning. You've been living a lie. Or at the very least, pride is keeping you from taking your next step. You need to go to celebrate recovery. But what will people think if I do that? You need to share with your small group and ask them to pray for you and to support you and encourage you. Yeah, but what are they going to think of me if I do that? Your pride is holding you hostage to the freedom that Jesus wants you to experience. Remember what Jesus said? The truth will set you free. Now back to Matthew 6. In the context of pointing out spiritual pride and hypocrisy and what it looks like, Jesus also gives us an example of what a genuine prayer is. It's what we mentioned earlier. We call it the Lord's Prayer. Most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with, with it. Um, if you've gone to church, some churches even recite it. What we often don't see is the context in which, in which Jesus shows us how to pray. This is the context. Jesus is saying when you approach prayer, Approach it with humility, a childlike dependence on God, a genuineness, a contrite spirit, a willingness to look inside. Because he's talking about it in the context of hypocrisy and spiritual pride. This prayer serves much more as a model to the attitude, our attitude in prayer, not so much as a prayer we should just recite. So let me read it to you, but hear it from the perspective of what I just told you. Humility, authenticity, a childlike dependence on God. I really believe that's what Jesus is teaching with this prayer. By the way, that song we sang, the last song of the song set, it's called Manifesto, which has the Lord's Prayer in it. Uh, you probably recognize it. It rocks, doesn't it? But back to Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. Here's what Jesus said. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Is it time to stop pretending? 
Is it time to take off the mask and get honest with God and maybe others? Because if you do, it can lead to freedom. I want you to meet Lisa. Some of you know Lisa already. Some of you know her story. She actually shared it just very briefly, um, even at Easter this year. But what I find so refreshing about Lisa when she shares her story is that there's no pretending with Lisa. Um, She doesn't try to put a spin on her story in some way as to make herself out to be someone she's not. And Lisa actually co-leads our Celebrate Recovery group here at the church on Thursday night. So good morning, Lisa. Good morning. Um, I still remember the day you walked into my office about 13 years ago and you shared your story with me. And I'm sure you remember that too. So tell us about that. It was on a Wednesday. The reason why I know that is because this last week after we had spoken, I'd gone back to look in my journal and found that it was on a Wednesday prior to a Sunday that I was supposed to sing a solo. And the title of the solo was Highest Honor. And the lyrics had to do with a longing to give God the highest honor by the choices that we make from morning to night. Well, I had um, I'd been through a couple of divorces, and both husbands had left me, and I'd suffered years of infertility. I'd lost three babies, and I had chosen to medicate my grief with alcohol. At this point in time, um, I had been restored as a mother. I'd been restored as um, a wife. I was married to an F-16 pilot, and... Um, he was in between jobs at the time other than the guard job that he had where he'd fly his F-16. And um, we had a friend who had gone down in Rick's plane. I call it Rick's plane just because it had the engraving of his call sign on it, which was curly. He's bald. (laughs) (laughs) And his call sign was curly. But Padre, who um, loved the Lord, that's why they called him Padre. Padre means priest actually went down in the plane and was taken to heaven. And all the fear of losing, again, like losing this husband, came back to me. So Luke was sick, and I was working too hard. And Luke's illness was only a 10-day thing. But nonetheless, I was working too hard at the time, Rick's between jobs, revisiting this grief having to do with Padre. And um, I was jealous of the time my sitter had with my son. I wasn't able to spend as much time with Luke as I wanted to. So I had started to drink to medicate the stress and some grief. So anyways, I'm supposed to sing this song on Sunday. And um, I'd been praying every morning that my decisions would be honoring and I would be able to get a grasp on this area of life or this thing in my life that had control over me now instead of me having control over it. And it did not matter how much I prayed, how much I read, how much I was in the Word, how much I got on my knees by the evening, the mental obsession took over and I would medicate my stress. And so I was desperate, I had no place to turn Really, I, um, I felt like I needed some place that I could go and, and talk about this, and I knew it would be kept confidential. So I came to Jerry because I felt like he was a safe guy to, to let it all out, even though I feared what he might be thinking of me 
So, <laughs> so when you came into my office, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? Yeah, um, I was full of fear at the time. I was worried. I was anxious, and I was full of dread. Um, I was worried about what he would think of me. Um, I was full of fear of further loss. I was um, anxious, meaning stressed out, and I think the dread um, was just dread of failing again, 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 over and over every day. Now, you ended up going to celebrate recovery and taking some other steps to get some support and uh, have, have not had a drink in how many years? Almost 13. Wow, which is yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> why? Why was it hard for you to take the, that initial step and go to celebrate recovery? Well, again, I was worried about what other think, uh, others would think of me, especially if, if this would get out professionally. You know, how could that affect me? And so, because you're a doctor. Yes. Yeah. And, I don't know if you want me to say that. Well, you just did. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so there was some pride, I think, involved in that. I, I really was concerned that it would affect me professionally and so I went out of town and went to celebrate recovery in Greenwood where no one would know me and um, I didn't I didn't really understand what recovery was all about I think I had a lot of fear um, around that um, I thought it was just going to be a lot of geeky weirdos <laughs> and of course today I'm one of them <laughs> but um, it Recovery is so much more than than what it looks like. You know, alcohol is what brought me into the room. But doing the program of recovery will um, examine. We examine what all the underlying things are inside deep, like a spiritual inventory, if you will, as to um, what needs to be worked on in a deeper way, so that we don't have to use those crutches anymore. Because life can be hard. And so we need to learn how to live life in a way where we don't have to use um, habits that aren't, aren't good for us. So over the last 13 years, I've heard you tell your story many, many times. What, what always is fascinating to me is that it seems like every time I hear you tell it, you're more open with that. You own it even more. And... Why do you do that? Why are you able to do that? Part of that has to do with growing through the years because I, you know, I've been in this 13 years now and I've learned more about myself and the underlying things that I struggled with, which have included pride, like I mentioned before, and fear. Um, I had resentments that I didn't even know I had. Um, I had an approval addiction where I worried about what other people think. And so I've learned all that about myself. And the more that I am open with somebody, the more they can um, think, well, gosh, if God can help her through this anxiety, this depression, this resentment, this fear, maybe this thing could work for me too. So it's a, I have a passion to carry this message of hope. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, the rest of the story is worth hearing. So tell us the rest of your story. All right, so this is who I am today as compared to who I was. Today, I get to be a mom to a handsome young man that we adopted from Guatemala. Today, I get to be the wife to a guy I believe that will stick with me forever. He's stuck with me 18 years so far. He, he was in the 
first service and she looked at him and said, you'd better. <laughs> I called him out. <laughs> he said, don't embarrass me, Lisa, but I probably did. <laughs> Today I get to help facilitate, celebrate recovery at the Ridge every week. And that's an honor. Today I get to continue working at the profession that I trained for. So all those fears were unfounded. Today I get to wake up without feeling sick or shame. Today I get to focus on what I have to be thankful for versus what I have lost. Today, I don't have to take things so personally or be so sensitive. Today, I don't have to worry about what others think of me. Today, I can make better decisions for myself and my family. Today, I can forgive others since I understand what it means to be forgiven. Had to revisit that one this last week. <laughs> Today, I can embrace the day instead of wishing I weren't here. Today. I can see color in everything versus seeing everything as gray, drab, and dreary. Today, I can sleep without sleeping pills. Today, I can recognize my triggers, those that I mentioned earlier, and um, pick up the tools that I've learned in this program or pick up the phone and call a friend for support. I love my friends in recovery because, you know, when they walk in, um, they're being real. They're here because they need help and support, and um, we need each other. Today, I can say no when I need to most of the time. Today, I can grieve without medicating my grief. Today, I can sing and mean it. Today, I can share my experience, strength, and hope with others. Today, I can experience the precious little things that I was missing before. Today, I can heed God's instructions more clearly. That word heeds means I can hear his instructions but act on them as well. And today, I'm working on character assets instead of defects. Today, I can laugh when I used to feel like there was nothing to laugh about. And if and when my life is through and all this is taken from me, I have hope for an even better future. So today, I don't fear death. I believe in God's promise of heaven as a place where there is no more pain, sorrow, or tears. So that gives me hope. And so today I can give God the highest honor by making better choices from sunrise to moonrise. If I can do it, you can do it. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, thank you for sharing your story. And I know it means a lot to everybody to hear you share your story and will mean a lot to them. I'm going to leave you with a prayer. It's from the Bible. It's one that David wrote um, in Psalm 131, 23, and 24. It is the most authentic prayer I've ever read in my life. Here's what it says. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life.